This podcast is brought to you by Nerd Wallet. Are you paying for your me time with just any credit card in your wallet? While you shouldn't stop treating yourself, you should start paying with a credit card that has perks. Nerd Wallet lets you compare top travel credit cards side by side to maximize your spending. Some even offering 10 times points on your spending. So what could future you do with better rewards? A free flight? Room upgrades? Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. Reminder, credit is subject to lender approval and term supply. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. I bet you're smart. Yeah, and you like to hold your own in the group chat. We can help you drop even more knowledge. My name is Martine Powers. And I'm Elahe Izadi. We host a daily news podcast called Post Reports. Every weekday afternoon, Post Reports takes you inside an important and interesting story with the kind of reporting that you can only get from The Washington Post. You can listen to Post Reports wherever you get your podcasts. Go find it now and hit follow. Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited time 2% cashback on purchases and pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024. Hi, everyone. I'm Katie Couric, and this is Next Question. I hope you're all having a wonderful weekend. I haven't talked this morning. That's why my voice is so low. But I wanted to tell you about a fascinating conversation I had yesterday with New York Times journalist Sabrina Tavernisi. I wanted to share it with all of you as the special bonus episode. Sabrina was recently named co-host of The Daily and has been covering the war in Ukraine with a series of dispatches that offer a searing glimpse of what life is like there right now on the front lines. But Sabrina's time in the region extends all the way back to the 1990s, when she was a recent Barnard grad and made her way to the country as a freelance journalist. She ended up working as a foreign correspondent for the New York Times based in Moscow a few years later. So much of the coverage of the war in Ukraine concentrates on the day-to-day but I really wanted to take advantage of Sabrina's rich perspective from living and working in the region for so long. So we dug deep and covered everything from what life was like in Russia just after the wall came down and Putin's rise to power to how Russians today perceive this war and how things might play out in the months ahead. I hope you enjoy our conversation as much as I did. Oh, and if you hear barking, Sabrina's dog Clementine also made a few appearances. Hi, Sabrina. Hi, Katie. (laughs) So here we are. First and foremost, we have so much to talk about, but I have to say congratulations on being the new co-anchor of The Daily. How jazzed are you about this? Very excited. So excited. It's, um, yeah, it's a medium I've really admired for a very long time. And I feel incredibly lucky that the New York Times chose me to be one of its voices. So um, it's, uh, it's, yeah, it's just, it's a, it's an area of journalism that they are investing heavily in right now. And, you know, I think it's a, it's a medium that 
at its best in some ways I think is better than print. It's, um, you know, it really connects with the part of someone's brain that has, that has an emotional response to things. And I, uh, I think that it is uh, for that reason, very powerful. It is so immersive and yet it is quite different than print. Are you concerned about translating your skills as a reporter and a writer into a, an audio space? Well, yeah, they, you are right to point out that they are very different. Um, and I am, I am concerned about translating my skills. I mean, I think I've been practicing for quite a while since I've been with them on and off, um, you know, really going back to 2018. Uh, so it's, um, you know, it's, it's, it's a very different medium. Uh, there are certain things that are the same. I mean, in terms of basic journalism, you know, I just spent uh, three weeks in Ukraine um, and that was in some ways kind of me returning to my old life and what I used to do. I used to spend a lot of time uh, in Russia and I spent a lot of time in war zones. And this was kind of combining of those two things that I'd spent a lot of reporting time on. And, you know, at its most basic, you are kind of going to people listening to their stories, trying to reflect back some sort of a picture of what is actually happening in that place. Um, you know, so fundamentally audio is trying to do that as well, but you know, it's just, I think for our show, you know, I was watching the print reporters do what they do, which is, you know, having to confirm lots of things, you know, this bombing, that bombing, um, you know, what is happening all the time, all over the country. And I, because we had, you know, we have a show a day, we, we picked one big target. Uh, and then we were doing, you know, quite a number of them on Ukraine, but I could really take my time and step back a little bit and say, okay, what are the emotional notes I want to, we want to be hitting in this particular episode? We're not, we don't have the burden of having to run around confirming every last bombing. We can really kind of take our time and, and pick our targets. Um, and, you know, and I can spend a whole day in a train station talking to kids and their moms and really plumbing the depths of that. And, and that is something that I really love. I've always liked uh, deeper uh, in journalism and not faster. Um, and, or wider. And yeah. Like I, I like the sort of the, the narrower lens because you get to go deeply into someone, uh, you know, give it, get a sense of the psychology, what, you know, what is driving that person. I do think a lot of the whys come from deep exploration, um, deep inquiry. And I, and I love that about audio. It seems singularly focused on that. I agree. And I think by telling a specific story and by really digging into the human emotion, it can be much more effective in reflecting the bigger story. Yes. In a way that sort of harder factual news can't necessarily convey. Yes. Let's talk about Ukraine in a moment, but first I wanna give our listeners and viewers a sense, Sabrina, of your crazy background. <laughs> because I'm sort of like, Sabrina grew up in a rural town in Western Massachusetts. You picked blueberries in the summer to make money. You mm -hmm. went to Barnard and suddenly you decide, hey, I want to move to Russia. <laughs> what up with that, Sabrina? 
So I think, you know, in a lot of ways, I think it was, it, it sprung from my coming from a small place and feeling like I wanted very badly to see the world. Um, I didn't grow up in a big city. I grew up in a town of 1800 people. My eighth grade class had 12 people in it. And for the longest time, really as early as I can remember, I wanted to travel. I wanted to see the world. Um, I wanted to be able to experience what life was like in different places for different people. So, yeah. So my first stop was a big city in the U.S. So that was New York. And that's where I went to college. And then in college, I had to take a language requirement. It was, a, it was something that I had to do. And I, uh, my, 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 the father's side of my family came from Italy in the 1950s. Um, so there are a lot of cousins who were Italian speaking. And I thought I wanted to do something different. Um, and it was 1989 and the wall was falling and the Soviet Union was on the verge of collapse. And there was a lot happening um, in Russia. And so I took Russian really kind of on a lark. I thought different alphabet, you know, something different. This is where, you know, there's some history happening in this part of the world at this point. And um, yeah, and, and that's what, and, and so I took that as my language. Um, I have a pretty good ear for languages, so I got pretty good at it. And, and then I went after graduating, I guess I, when I, I think on my around my 24th birthday, I went, I moved to Eastern Russia to a, a city called Magadan, which is on the Eastern coast. If you know the risk board, it's kind of um, on the underarm of the Kamchatka Peninsula. It's under, it's under, it's under there. It's, most people don't know it, but it's very far. It's kind of above, it's, 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 it's in the far East. That was pretty brave of you, Sabrina, to just kind of, I mean, to go to Eastern Russia at 24, did you go by yourself? So when I first went, I, you know, I was calling around after I graduated from college. Looking, anyone want to go to Russia with me? <laughs> no, no, I didn't. I, I didn't particularly need anyone to go with me, but I, I needed a job. So I was kind of calling around, you know, those were the days of faxes. You would still fax your resume. Place. So I was faxing my resume to like law firms and places like that. And um, yeah, there wasn't, no one was hiring me. I mean, probably understandably, I was someone with basically no skills. Um <laughs> was faxing them their my resume and uh i called at some point alaska um some nonprofits up there and then some national parks up there and then at some point one of the national parks a big um, um national forest called chugach national forest told me that they had some educators who were going to russia on a summer to teach in a summer exchange program for high school kids and they needed, and they needed a translator they weren't paying, but they would pay the way. And I thought, oh, that sounds great. So I went and did that. And that was, it was, I think, the summer of 94. So I spent a couple of months with 20 high school kids, um, a couple of Russian teachers, and then this American teacher um, in a very remote place of um, a place called Magadan Oblast. So it's, it's the, the, the region of, of Magadan. Again, I mean, for, it's an eight-hour flight from Moscow, so it's very it's very remote even for Russians. Um, and then I, on my way back to the U.S. at the end of that summer, I met someone who was um, working on a USAID-funded program in the city of Magadan, and she said, "You know, we're looking for someone to kind of help organize things and be a bookkeeper and and do some administrative things for our program. Would you be interested?" And I said, "Yes." So I so I stayed. So I was in Magadan for three years. And then you 
Did you move another place in Russia or you just- uh, Yes, so, I, so in 1997, so that was 1994, in 1997, I moved to Moscow. Um, and that was, um, you know, in that era, Yeltsin, of course, was president still. It was um, kind of the wild 90s. They were having all these currency collapses and, and um, you know, it was very, very difficult time for Russians. Um, the stock market was going wild and, and there were a lot of sort of foreign investors in Russia. Um, and then the year after I began, they had a big um, default and currency collapse in 1998. And that was sort of the beginning of the end of, of the era of the 1990s, a sort of wild, free, but very economically painful for Russians kind of democratic era that people came to associate with just misery and poverty and lack of control over their lives. Um, and I, so I was working at uh, Bloomberg, which is, you know, as you know, um, a financial newswire, uh, just actually just when they just started their bureau. Um, and I worked there from 97 to, to 2000 when I, uh, and then I started the times in 2000. So, so yeah, so I was, I was basically working in journalism from 1997 on. So you were a freelance writer in Russia in the late 90s after going there in the early 90s to mm -hmm. to do various things in a remote part of Russia. But when you got to Moscow, what was the what was the vibe like? I mean, how what was it like being in Moscow in what 1997 and with this whole adjustment to this new way of life for many Russians, right? Yeah, it was very, um, it was different than Magadan. Uh, Magadan, you know, of course, was this very remote place, even for Russians. And it was very, um, there was sort of the sense that people had kind of become stranded out there. It was very expensive to live out there after the Soviet Union collapsed and all of the kind of price supports and the sort of the subsidizations of, of life out there fell away. Uh, it was expensive to buy groceries. It was expensive to heat houses. And, you know, people didn't have the money to do those things. So it was very difficult time uh, living out there for a lot of people. And Moscow, coming to Moscow, I mean, you know, it was such a, a wild time in a lot of ways. It was, um, you know, there were sort of mafia stories and there was the privatization going on in which, you know, a, a small handful of, of, um, of, of people were sort of fixing the privatization um, process and, and making, you know, coming away with fortunes while, while most- I was going to say, would those be the oligarchs? Yeah, they were the early ones. So they were the, you know, the 1990s oligarchs. Then, of course, there was a whole other iteration after Putin came to power and, you know, established his own networks and had his own kind of groups of um, people getting rich off the state. Um, but the, these were the, you know, it was it was Friedman. It was Harakovsky. It was Abramovich. Um, you know, some of these names are still around, but a lot of them aren't. Gusinski, he had the big media empire. But I remember there being this kind of real freewheeling sense of foreigners coming in, people making a lot of money. The stock market was going crazy. It was like, oh, my goodness, this capitalism thing. Everybody's kind of into it. But really, for the average Russian, it was just a very painful, frightening time because people, you know, became impoverished. Um, they weren't getting pensions. They weren't getting salaries. Um, you know, there, there was this kind of saying that. Um, you know, the word democracy in, in Russian, it, it became this kind of 
curse word in a way. Um, and you know, people associated that those, that period of the '90s. It was a very searing period. They associated it with loss of control, you know, poverty, and 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 real fear that they were not going to have food the next day. Yeah, terrible growing pains. It sounds like. And did the word democracy become less of a sort of four letter word eventually? I mean, I don't think so. You know, I think it's I think it's I think Russia is still finding its way and trying to understand what it is and what it wants. And, you know, now, of course, with the war um, and with Putin in power so many years. You know, it's um, I think it's pretty confused. Um, I think that it never really had much of a muscle memory of democracy anyway. So it was always kind of an abstract notion. Uh, you know, I think we sort of imposed that on them that we think that they we thought they must have wanted that because we have that. And of course, they would want to be like us because our system is very good. <laughs> I think that, you know, we all are now experiencing a degree of um, seeing democracy and what it means in a new way, including in the U.S. Um, with the past couple of years. But but, you know, in those days, uh, I think it was just a very frightening time for a lot of Russians. Um, and, and, and I think in a lot of ways explains the rise of Putin in 2000, why people were so receptive to this man that I think, you know, from the outside, people look at, look at him and say, why would anybody want that? Um, and if you experienced Russia in the 1990s, uh, as the ordinary Russian did, you understand exactly why you would want that. You want someone who's going to bring order. You want someone who's going to make sure that your pension is paid. You want someone who's going to make sure that those rich guys who stole everything after 70 years of this communist telling you that it was property of the people, realizing it was property of only seven people. You wanted those guys not to get away with murder. Um, you know, you wanted some pretty practical things, I think. And but power in Russia is, um, you know, is absolute. And Putin came in, took it and consolidated and, you know, and essentially kind of recreated um, this very corrupt system that, that had existed before. It's just a different set of people. Coming up, more with New York Times journalist and The Daily co-host, Sabrina Tavernisi. There's a lot happening these days, but I have just the thing to get you up to speed on what matters without taking too much of your time. The 7 from the Washington Post is a podcast that gives you the seven most important and interesting stories, and we always try to save room for something fun. You get it all in about seven minutes or less. I'm Hannah Jewell. I'll get you caught up with The 7 every weekday. So follow The 7 right now. This podcast is brought to you by NerdWallet. Are you paying for your me time with just any credit card in your wallet? While you shouldn't stop treating yourself, you should start paying with a credit card that has perks. NerdWallet lets you compare top travel credit cards side by side to maximize your spending, some even offering 10 times points on your spending. So what could future you do with better rewards? A free flight? Room upgrades? Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. Reminder, credit is subject to lender approval and term supply. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. 
Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited time 2% cashback on purchases. And pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024. You were a reporter for the New York Times. You started at the Times in 2000, the same year Putin came into power. Did you ever have any interactions with Putin or what were your impressions of him um, other than he was obviously a strong leader that people were looking to, to, as you mentioned, restore order and and give them, uh, I guess, a, a baseline quality of life? You know, I never was one on one with him. Um, I've been to a couple of his, pre- you know, he had he would have big kind of end of the year press conferences. Um, been to a couple of those. I, you know, I've interviewed lots and lots of Russians who really love him. Um, so I understood his power, uh, if not kind of, you know, if not for, through my own mind, certainly through the experience of Russians who were experiencing him. Um, but, you know, I, I remember clearly, I remember clearly the night that he was elevated. It was, it was Y2K. It was, it was um, New Year's Eve from 99 to 2000. And, you know, all of the American news organizations, all of the editors had tasked them with basically calling every single nuclear power plant across Russia's eight time zones because they all thought that there was going to be a nuclear meltdown because like the computers were all going to go in the fritz. Right. And I remember that. I remember that. Oh, there's another American on the phone. Will you talk to her? Oh God. Like, no, we're fine. Our computer didn't, you know, so we were all kind of like rolling our eyes at this assignment. And then that night Yeltsin abdicated. Yeltsin made this unbelievable speech in which he said, you know, I thought we were going to have this, great leap to some bright civilized future. And we got stuck in the middle and, and I'm, and I'm sorry. Um, and I am installing this guy, Vladimir Putin, who's been my deputy prime minister, uh, to run the country. And there will be an election in May in which you will decide whether you agree that he should be president or not. And in May he won overwhelmingly. And here he is. 22 years later. Yeah. And we're going to talk about Ukraine, but I do want to ask you another question about Russia, because 20 years ago, Sabrina, you wrote Russians, quote, miss feeling like a great superpower and they've had to swallow this bitter pill of being weak. So I'm wondering, as we transition this conversation into Ukraine, do you think that sort of inferiority complex somehow permeated the Russian psyche and might have contributed to this invasion of of Ukraine that that started uh, on February 24th. So I think so there are two layers, right? I mean, I think certainly for Putin, I think that Putin always saw the Soviet collapse as a humiliating tragedy. Um, There was Madeleine Albright just died and we were looking at, I mean, I was reading through her obit and she said that she was the first American official to actually meet with Putin as after he became president in 2000. And she said she was left with the impression that 
he 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 claimed to understand why the wall fell and why that was happening but at the same time she was she had the impression that he felt embarrassed about the soviet collapse and did see that as a tragedy um and weakness humiliation which i think is such a good word because it's powerful. so visceral right it's powerful it's powerful it's a driver of a lot of things i think particularly in conflict um so i think that for him it was always you know this was always the case i mean if we remember back um to one of the first things he was really known for in the russian government was that was the second chechen war of course so he kind of came in guns blazing in 1999 to really put down uh for a second time uh this kind of independence movement in this little republic that was that's in the south of russia called chechnya um quite brutally um and in in a way you know is is uh sort of a similar playbook that they're using right now in ukraine but but i think so i think that putin as a leader was really um animated by that idea you know the humiliation and the kind of sense that russia was somehow sort of less than and not not had had given up something that was rightfully that rightfully belonged to it and that this was this was uh you know this was a sorry my that's okay um, that it, that that it, it like it had been cheated out of something that rightfully belonged to it and that there was there was a sense of a real sense of grievance in that well it's hard to go from a superpower to less than yeah. right and if you think you know even even in the US we have we 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 understand now the sentiment right that that make that make America great again that that you know when i first came back uh to to the united states from russia uh well from being abroad uh in 2010 and there was the kind of the beginning of i'd say the very early trump stuff you know the tea party was starting to happen and i recognized a lot of what i remember in russia from the 1990s you know if only the factory could come back if only you know we could have what we had you know in the 1950s and 60s and 70s if only we could go back that was when times were you know simpler and better and we could rely on having our salaries and it was a time when they you know perhaps they weren't entirely able to you know be free quote unquote as we would understand it but they knew that they could buy the sausage in the shop that was near their house and they could afford it and they knew that they could probably afford to take a vacation to bulgaria and they knew you know that they could depend on these basic kind of middle class things that made life worth living and that when we came along and told them oh but you must want freedom of the press because that's the most important thing they would look at you blankly and say why it's not more important than being able to buy sausage and so i think that was the you know that was the sort of um the conversation we were having with russians in the 1990s and they just weren't understanding you know what was what was it that was so important about this democracy thing it just didn't really make sense to them it, it brought only it had brought this this era had brought only misery um and so i think back to your original question katie this good question of kind of humiliation and that sort of feeling less than i think that for a lot of russians that was true as well that you know we used to be great people used to respect us in the world they used to be afraid of us and now look you know they laugh at us and that hurt and i you know i think that again i don't think this is a particularly russian thing perhaps it's a big powers thing or it's a declining big powers thing 
again, you know, I feel like we, we. Or it's a human nature thing involving. Yes. You no, know, I think countries can have egos too. And, you know, interestingly, I mean, I remember one of the first times I came, one of the first assignments I did when I came back to the U.S. in 2010, I was covering the midterms in Delaware, of all places. There was um, a Tea Party candidate there that I was following. And I remember what going to a kind of a, a big sort of secondhand market on a Sunday in southern Delaware. And I was talking to people there and saying, you know, I was talking about the election. And, and then I was just sort of talking about life. And I remember asking this one guy, you know, why do you come here? on a Sunday, you know, you could be just at home watching TV or relaxing. What's, 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 why do you come to this, this market? And he said, well, I love being in a place where so much of the merchandise was made in America. And he was really animated by this idea that, you know, the U.S. was in decline, that, that China was more powerful, that we used to be great. And now we're just limping along in this kind of pathetic way. And I, and I, I tell you, I, it could have been it was the same conversation I would have had with a Russian person in any provincial city at any point in the 1990s. Well, let's talk about this invasion of Ukraine. Um, how much of that? either by Putin or perhaps by the Russian people has been tangled up in this notion that we need to be uh, a better, you know, we need to be a version of our former selves. I think, you know, for Putin a lot, I, I'm actually trying to write an essay right now uh, about this, just kind of remembering, you know, back through my years in Russia. And I remember I, I spent a bit of time in Georgia in 2008, which, of course, was the previous, the, the, you know, before Russia started doing all of these things in Ukraine, it, it did. It had a, um, an invasion of Georgia, country of Georgia. And I, I went back to the pieces I wrote from there and I, I quoted one Russian officer as saying, since Putin has come you know, we, essentially we feel like men again. We, we feel like we are, um, people respect us again. And this is a great feeling. And so I think that there is, you know, there, there definitely is, um, is, is something to that. Now, you know, this invasion of Ukraine was in, entirely an invasion of choice and it was an invasion of choice that came out of one man's brain. So I can't exactly say that, you know, the people of Russia were sort of driving him to this. I don't think that there was some kind of, you know, I think that the, most people in Russia were very, you know, obviously there's a big propaganda campaign going on and to the extent that people even understand what is actually happening in Ukraine, you know, many people don't. But um, I'd say that certainly, you know, Russian people we knew were very were shocked that this had happened. Um, so I don't think that there was a big, you know, it's very different than 2014 in which Russia annexed Crimea, the, the peninsula in the south, southern part of Ukraine, and then, you know, sort of stirred up some nationalist trouble in the eastern part of the country. I think that I was in Russia around that time and, you know, it was a very nationalist surge. You know, there was this phrase, Nash, Crimea is ours, this kind of you know, people, there was a real public groundswell backing that. And I don't, that is not the case in this current invasion. Well, let me ask you about that because I've tried to read and understand uh, the Russian, how the Russian people feel, which of course is a ridiculously monolithic description, right? But I've read that it's urban versus rural, that it's young versus old, uh, people who have access to the internet and understand how to get 
information uh, may feel one way. People who don't, who are older and maybe perhaps less tech savvy, feel another way. Um, Can you give us a sense or is it impossible to know about public support of what's happened in Ukraine? So I actually spent quite a bit of time trying to sort this out because I myself was also very curious about this. Um, So, um, I mean, you have to sort of start with that there aren't really public opinion polls at this point. There are some very good organizations that try to do it, but it's just become quite dangerous. There are lots of arguments about how even the best ones, when they call up people on the phone, would you honestly answer anything at this point in Russia? So, you know, there's a lot of a huge amount of skepticism about the polls that are out there. Having said that, I did call a number of those organizations um, for the purpose of this piece of writing I was doing. And, you know, it's 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 anywhere between half to two thirds of, you know, nationally of Russians um, say that they support. Whatever it is they think that Putin is doing in Ukraine. So, you know, the support is pretty high. But you need to understand along with that, uh, that it's, it's um, you know, that for the most part, they don't, there's really not a clear picture anywhere of what is actually happening. Certainly most people are still just television watchers and on Russian television, you would never know what was happening, you know, that there was a war going on in Ukraine. Really? Not at all? Well, it's a small, you know, it's a contained, small sort of humanitarian um you know, mission that's very denazification because the Russians were being mistreated, the Russians in Ukraine, or I mean, is that what they're thinking? I mean, you know, when you say is that what they're thinking, it's it's hard to I think that for the most part, the best way to understand it is that Russians, you know, there obviously are some, you know, very nationalist people in Russia who say, oh, you know, down with those Nazis, good on you, Putin. But I think that for the most part, the most common reaction is something's going on over there. I'm not quite sure what it is. It's one big power against another big power. Big powers are all corrupt. Who can possibly sort out what, where the truth is? It's too hard. I don't know. Everybody's lying. I'm just going to go buy tomatoes. It's that, you know, it's it's the kind of like. Probably they're not entirely telling the truth, but I'm just one little person. I'm never going to be able to truly understand it. And, you know, the West has always had it in for Russia anyway. So I certainly am going to not going to believe what they're saying. I mean, it's this real kind of like just. You know, attachment. it's just post. Fact society. Which again, Katie, I mean, you know, I, I feel like we we are, you know, we're we're not entirely we, we're not entirely ignorant of that, <laughs> you know. And I rem- again, I recognize Russia and in, in a lot of these tendencies in the U.S. It's that you know, no, you can't. It's 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 the making of it's getting society to the point where it's so cynical and so exhausted that it's not going to listen to anybody or anything. So true, false, whatever. I'm not going to bother my head at try about trying to sort it out because it's never going to be clear for me and it's never going to be working in my favor and I don't care. And that's kind of where they are. Coming up, 
more with New York Times journalist and co-host of The Daily, Sabrina Tavernisi. The 2024 presidential campaign features two candidates who are very well-known to Americans. And yet, there's complexity at every turn. Criminal trials for one of those candidates. Young voters who are angry. The Campaign Moment podcast from The Washington Post gives you what matters. I'm Aaron Blake, and I'm covering my 10th election cycle. My colleagues and I have insights that you won't find anywhere else. So follow the Campaign Moment right now, wherever you're listening. This podcast is brought to you by NerdWallet. Are you paying for your me time with just any credit card in your wallet? While you shouldn't stop treating yourself, you should start paying with a credit card that has perks. NerdWallet lets you compare top travel credit cards side by side to maximize your spending. Some even offering 10 times points on your spending. So what could future you do with better rewards? A free flight? Room upgrades? Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. Reminder, credit is subject to lender approval and term supply. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited-time 2% cashback on purchases. And pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024. So you have done some incredible reporting telling these microcosmic stories that I think are very illustrative of what's happening over and over again in Ukraine. And I know you spent time, as you mentioned, with with mothers and their children and that they were just, I think, in a complete state of shock. Tell me what it was like talking to those women and Many of them, I'm assuming, Sabrina, are your age, small kids. And I'm I'm curious, what did many of these women tell you? They were in that early stage that I do remember from other conflicts of being so shocked that what was happening had happened to them that they couldn't quite, it's like they're brains hadn't caught up with their bodies. You know, I mean, it was sort of interviewing them they sort of had this dazed look that, you know, really literally just last week, I was taking my kid to piano lessons or, you know, I was, um, I was going to work. I was looking for a parking place. I was living my life in my town with my family. And in a million years, I never would have believed that this could ever happen in my town. And, you know, it, it happens really quickly. I mean, I remember this in 2014 that, that, you know, one day you're taking a run by the river and there, you know, there's lots of middle-class life bubbling around you, little espresso trucks and little, um, you know, yoga studios and people having beers after work. And then one day there's just a crack in the sky and, and, and all of that stops. 
And then all middle-class people try to leave and then it becomes an empty dead place. And I mean, that was what was happening in Ukraine the weeks that I was there. And it's very painful to see because people can't process it. Um, and so they're kind of in the process of leaving, still saying, oh, you know, I'm, we're, we're definitely going back. This is just, you know, this is, we're, we're, this is just kind of temporary. We're going to be gone for, for a couple of weeks. Because in many parts of Ukraine, or this was my impression, and maybe you can help me understand this, in certain parts of Ukraine anyway, they had become used to sort of uh, military maneuvering and kind of trying to live their lives, riding their bikes. And that, Lindsay Adario is a friend of mine, and she talked about how people just sort of, you know, hit the ground in certain cases. Was that widespread or is that just in pockets of Ukraine? I think it's really just, I mean, in it, it was it was in the this kind of a small a small part of the eastern part of Ukraine, so Donetsk and Lugansk. And this is actually a place I spent a bunch of time in in 2014. Um, you know, the war had come there in 2014, shortly after Russia annexed Crimea. Uh, so you have kind of the events of 2014 were, you know, revolution essentially in in Kiev, Moscow friendly leader collapses and flees and you have a new government russia comes in and takes over the crimean peninsula i remember the little green men that was that was that period um no one knew who they were and then suddenly it was obvious that they were russians and then um in the in the on an eastern sliver of ukraine along the russian border there was this sort of nationalist uprising which you know it was an uprising and it was nationalist but it was very much backed by moscow so you had kind of local governments in a number of places fall to these Moscow-backed separatists. And so those regions also fell in 2014. So, you know, so that that eastern flank was a place that was used, you know, used to, but was a place where there had been war for eight years and it was kind of bumping along. But the rest um, of the country was living. Yeah. I mean, people were not used to war at all. I, that, you know, Ukraine had you know, obviously, you know, it had a memory of it, I suppose, from the Second World War, but it had been a very long time since Ukrainians had been, you know, in, in conflict. Um, so it was, a sh it was a deep shock to people. Um, and, you know, you just saw them kind of ghost-like wandering, you know, in these long lines of, of traffic and, um, you know, this whole kind of, it's like the whole country emptied out into this one river trying to leave. Um, and we, I did a, um, and we did an episode about it because I was so struck by, you know, what happens when, you know, millions of people get on the road at the same time to, to leave their homeland. It looks like that. Um, Four million at this point. Four million people have left Ukraine. And so, so many internally displaced as well. I mean, many, many more internally displaced. So what what is going to happen? I know you don't have a crystal ball, but I think that's what everyone is wondering. The first off, I mean, it's taken much longer for the Russian military to do this. I think they really underestimated the the pride and the fierce loyalty Ukrainians had for their country and their way of life. But it does seem like it's a matter of time before I don't know. Maybe that's not true. I don't know. Um, 
what do you think is going to happen? I think that's the question everyone wants to know. I mean, what what does Putin want? Will he just keep going? Will it even if it's a slog? Uh, what's going to happen to Zelensky, who's just impressed people all around the world with his his defiance and courage? I mean, how do you see all of this playing out, Sabrina? Yeah, it is the million dollar question. And, I, you know, unfortunately, to be able to answer it accurately, one would need to be inside the brain of Vladimir Putin, because, um, you know, we he's he is the only one that matters in the situation. And he is the one that we know least about. Um, you know, we have some sense of what the Russian defense ministry is saying, and we're making a lot of guesses about what, you know, their statements mean vis-a-vis what might happen. You know, there are these talks that have been happening, but are any of those people empowered to really talk on behalf of Putin? We don't really know. He's also being protected from the truth, it sounds like. He he is getting a, a rosy uh, scenario when things are, are not going well. Right, which has been kind of a long, proud history of, 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 of Russian autocrats that, you know, people don't want to tell them the truth. Um, you know, it's very, I think that, I think the thing that I've been most surprised by is that Ukrainians have really rallied and really shown that Ukraine is an idea that they are willing to die for. I was, I was not, I I didn't really know what to expect, but, but, you know, certainly like that has been very much uh, something that has come out of this. I mean, it's like every you know, going around Ukraine those weeks, it's like every single person in the country was rowing toward the same point on the horizon. I mean, it was this amazing kind of social act that was going on, um, everybody. So that was quite something. You know, in terms of the Russians, um, again, I, I can't pretend to know what's in Putin's head. Um, you know, it's obviously not going very well for them. But I don't think that that means that he will back off or say, OK, I'm crying uncle. I mean, he believes that Ukraine cannot, you know, go west. I mean, that, that you know, it's, it's very fundamental. And, and I don't think that, you know, some military setbacks are going to change that. So, you know, maybe there's a scenario in which, you know, he... Russia resets and it's more about taking the eastern and southern parts of the country, which is, you know, on the other side of the Dnieper River. Um, You know, certainly we know that he won't leave Ukraine alone, so it won't, you know, Ukraine will not be in a position in which it would be able to, you know, join the EU, get foreign investment. I mean, Ukraine will be this kind of hobbled thing. And that, of course, suits his purposes very well. So I, I don't really know territorially what it will mean, uh, but it is not good for Ukrainians. And I would honestly be surprised if, you know, in a couple of weeks there's some diplomatic solution and we all go back to the way we were. I, I just don't. I just don't see that happening. So you think it will just continue to be a slow and painful and violent shipping away? of yes. this country and its people and any civilians that may get in his way. Yeah, 
I mean, I don't think that matters. In fact, I think that that's part of the strategy, right? That, that was certainly the case in Chechnya, you know, that you, you make up for what you can't achieve in a functioning ground campaign by bombing things. And that's certainly how they ended up taking that city and subduing that territory. Um, Ukraine, obviously, much bigger. You know, Chechnya is, um, you know, Grozny is a couple hundred thousand people and, and Kiev is four million people. Um, but, you know, they've got time. <laughs> They're not, you know, that they, they, he thinks in a time, totally different time horizon than we do. So I, I just don't, I don't, I know that we're kind of, um, you know, as journalists always sort of being asked to kind of, you know, be authoritative about what will happen and kind of where this is all going. But I just think, I, I just don't think, I think it's, I think it's, um, I don't think it's necessarily going to a good place and it's going to be, it, it could be, you know, muddled and unclear, but certainly painful and grinding for a very long time. And in your view, is Putin here to stay? I think people fantasize about, you know, what if Putin just was taken out or ousted or whatever, assassinated even. And uh, uh, do you get the sense that he's not going anywhere? Yes. Yeah. I don't, I don't think there's any, I don't think there's any danger with Putin. I mean, he's, you know, he's very well insulated. He's popular. You know, it's he's not. Um, I think this is mostly kind of fantasy of people. I think it's people projecting what they wish, what they wish would happen, uh, and not what is likely to happen. And do you think he's crazy enough to use nuclear weapons? I don't know. I don't know. I really don't. I mean, it'd be just pure speculation. I, I, I'm. It's not. It's not part of what I report. So I, <laughs> I would need to ask one of my Pentagon colleagues. I mean, maybe, um, maybe. I don't know. It's a really um, scary new world, isn't it? In many ways. Very strange. I, I keep looking at it thinking, is this happening? I, I, I don't, I, I keep squinting and just not recognizing it. Though I should, you know, because um, as many people in Russia will tell you, you know, there have been signs of this for a long time. I mean, there was the Grozny invasion in 2008. There was Crimea and Eastern Ukraine in 2014. Uh, there was Chechnya in 2000. Um, but yeah, it's like we kind of, I guess we're always trying to tell the world that Russia in a lot of ways was lovable and good and interesting and like a place that they should admire. Um, and, you know, perhaps we should have spent more time on the, on the parts that you shouldn't. It's hard. It's kind of like what, you know, what's in the mind of one man, it, because it's, I can't really say that, you know, Russians themselves were desperate for this. I mean, in a lot of ways, it was a very, it's a very radical thing that he's doing. I mean, for Russians to be killing Ukrainians, that was, ne that's not, and has never been something that would popularly fly. It would be like, would it be like Americans killing Canadians? Yeah, like that. It would just, I mean, I, I can't even, I mean, it, it's so deeply shocking, which is why I think people have this kind of defense mechanism that it's, it, you know, it can't be, it's, it's got, it's like, it's not really that there's something else, some way I can justify it because it's too horrible to actually contemplate. If I have to like stare at, at into the sun of it, I can't, I, I actually can't get my head there. So it's radical what he's doing.
Well, I'm glad that we have your intelligence and sensitivity to help us guide, to help guide us through this this very scary and uncertain time. Um, that sounds like it has potential to kind of shift the world order in some ways and right. present a challenge that Americans really haven't thought about for a very long time. Very much so. Well, Sabrina, thank you. It's um, it's so fun to talk to you and good luck with everything. Thank you, Katie. Really enjoyed talking to you. You too, Katie. Thank you so much. That was New York Times journalist and co-host of The Daily, Sabrina Tavernisi. Thanks for listening, everybody. And you'll hear me next time. Next Question with Katie Couric is a production of iHeartMedia and Katie Couric Media. The executive producers are me, Katie Couric, and Courtney Litz. The supervising producer is Lauren Hansen, associate producers Derek Clements and Adriana Fazio. The show is edited and mixed by Derek Clements. For more information about today's episode or to sign up for my morning newsletter, Wake Up Call, go to katiecouric.com. You can also find me at Katie Couric on Instagram and all my social media channels. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited-time 2% cashback on purchases. And pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. The wait is almost over. Get ready for the 2024 NFL season as the full schedule is announced. Every rivalry, every rematch, every rookie debut, every game revealed. The 2024 NFL schedule release presented by Verizon coming in May. Live on NFL Network, ESPN2, and streaming on NFL+. Terms and conditions apply to NFL+. Visit nfl.com slash schedule release to learn more.